Hi, this is Warren Buffett and I bring you another podcast. I'm here with Dr. Subramanian, and he has a special guest, Dr. Greg Gerhardt. Dr. Sub, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, so thanks again, Warren, for um, asking me to be here, and thanks, uh, Greg, for being here. Welcome. Um, as you, as we already told you, this is a, a weekly podcast that Warren and I have been doing. Um, it's primarily geared towards uh, folks who cannot make it to support groups because they are either working or they have other preoccupations that can't make it to the meeting. So we give this as an opportunity for people to still get the information without having the opportunity to have a face-to-face uh, meeting. So briefly, um, Greg and I have known each other for many years, almost a couple of decades now. Um, he is a full professor at the uh, University of Kentucky, and he previously led uh, Udall Center, which is a very prestigious uh, Parkinson's research program. Uh, he continues to do cutting-edge uh, work in the Parkinson's field, uh, particularly in the area of deep brain stimulation and how you can adopt deep brain stimulation to newer applications beyond what we know about uh, deep brain stimulation. So um, if you don't mind starting off by saying a few words about your own work and where we are going with that, that would be great. Well, my research group is focused really over the last almost 40 years on how how to uh, not just treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but also uh, change the the course of the disease. And in fact, the, the buzzword is disease-modifying therapies for Parkinson's. And in particular, what we've been doing uh, over the last, say, uh, six years is that uh, we've been taking advantage of a standard of care, as many of you know, the use of deep brain stimulation in advanced Parkinson's disease. And we went to the FDA and asked them, uh, could we add on a procedure during the DBS, and in particular, transplant a small piece of uh, the patient's own peripheral nerve that is known in the literature to produce uh, a lot of trophic support factors, repair factors, uh, and transplant that at the same time a DBS surgery so that the patient really has, uh, in theory, would have very little extra risk. But we could uh, investigate how we could possibly give support to some of the damaged and dying neurons that uh, are uh, basically progressing in this disease. Okay, that's great. So, um, Warren, you have some questions about this that you yeah. wanted to ask? Yeah. It sounds like it's a great, great combination of uh, an established surgery and just adding medication to it. So it's not as much chance of side effects. No, that's a very good point. And one of the things we stress is we, we, we call this technology DBS Plus, And we stress that uh, in our case, we wanted to use a piece of nerve as the extra therapeutic. But in theory, this could be a, this is a platform for us clinically and scientifically to investigate new approaches to treat people. So the adjunctive therapy allows us to offload costs of the clinical trial directly to insurance and Medicare Medicaid, uh, but to investigate approaches that in the future uh, may be even changed from an adjunctive therapy to monotherapies. So um, let me ask you on that topic. So when you say you're putting a peripheral nerve, uh, piece of the peripheral nerve into the into the brain. 
uh, and you're taking it from this a patient's own one of their own nerves, and you know, and I typically I believe you take the sural nerve or correct, yeah, and so you're basically cutting out a piece of the nerve. Um, will they have any side effects at the place where they are, um, re- where you're removing the nerve? Uh, are there any loss of sensation or anything that they perceive? Well, it's interesting. That's a very good question, and it's one of the reasons we uh, chose the sural nerve. In fact. Uh, Plastic surgeons use pieces of the sural nerve every day in repair of peripheral nerves. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a very, very little, it's a, the sural nerve is a sensory nerve, mm-hmm. not a sensory motor nerve, as you know. And so the patients actually experience very little uh, effect. Right. In fact, uh, most of our patients don't even notice that it was, that it's ever been uh, damaged or right. removed. Right. And, and could you explain... Uh, how this actually works. So what does the peripheral nerve do in the brain? And what do we know about the the putative mechanisms by which this might do any benefit? Well, the interesting thing that remains kind of an enigma in in science and medicine is it turns out the peripheral nerve knows how to repair itself. And so what happens from a lot of uh, uh, science-based studies and, but this dates back, we, we knew as far as we can tell, even as early as the 1500s, mm-hmm. that there's something very special about peripheral nerves versus central nerves. Mm-hmm. So what happens, we think, is when the peripheral nerve is damaged, so let's say that you have a car accident and you crush uh, through, through an injury part of the peripheral nerve, that it actually de-differentiates itself into a repair cell and actually repairs a lot of the nerve. Mm-hmm. So the, it's, it's a scientific pathway uh, called C-June in part, but it's a very powerful mechanism. And so literally the nerve changes uh, in phenotype and actually repairs itself. Right. So just to bring the uh, audience into this, um, what you're talking about is if a nerve that's, for example, in a finger or in a foot that is injured from a car accident, it's typically uh, able to repair itself and, and make that injury um, recover to a large extent, although if you cut it totally, then it, wouldn't be, it would not repair itself, but a, a minor injury is able to solve it. And the most of the time, that solution is mediated by um, cells that are covering the nerve, uh, so-called Schwann cells, right? These are uh, cells that provide um, uh, myelin, uh, the insulating material that goes around nerves, and these cells are then able to serve as repair agents, right? And what you are referring to here, if I understand correct, is that um, these same nerve repair agents that are available in the uh, nerves that are in the fingers and feet, so on and so forth, um, they are not readily available in the brain. And so the idea is that if you can take these cells from the nerve and put it into the brain, they potentially could serve as repair agents for the dopaminergic cells that are um, affected in Parkinson's. Is that is that sort of the uh, Yeah, idea? well, to, to put it, I think, a little more in, in uh, the general world theme, we're, we're, we're trying to let the peripheral nerve teach the brain how to repair itself. So the the place where you actually put the peripheral nerve is is it in the same location where you're doing the deep brain stimulation or is it somewhere adjacent to it? Uh, we actually put uh, the the nerve uh, in a very close uh, area. Right. So what that means when we're doing the surgery is we don't have to do any extra uh, surgical procedure. 
And so that's what makes the DBS Plus work. So there's not any extra uh, removal of, let's say, bone or anything, so that we can actually introduce the tissue into a slightly different area at the same time that we introduce the electrodes into another region using these techniques called stereotaxic surgery. So in in summary, again, for the listener uh, who may not be familiar with the surgical procedures, um, the, the short summary is that if you're going to have a brain operation, like a deep brain stimulation operation, uh, and your surgeon has already uh, determined that you are a good candidate, and uh, um, the doctor, your neurologist who's caring for your movement disorder specialist, already decided that you're a good candidate, uh, such a patient may be a candidate for this DBS+. Plus. And here the idea would be, using the same hole that you make in the skull in order to introduce the electrode and the same trajectory, you may be able to introduce um, a part of the peripheral nerve into the same location or maybe slightly different location, but it's in the same trajectory. And what this would allow is uh, repair to happen in the uh, area that is affected in Parkinson's disease, meaning the substantia nigra, which produces dopamine. Is that sort of summarize what yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Warren you have a thoughts on that yeah. yeah the monotherapy that that Dr. Gerhardt talked about that's when you don't go there for DBS you go there just for the DBS plus and is that, am I right to say that yes when uh that means people aren't going to be as sick when they, when they need that surgery well we we think that based on previous clinical trials that we and others have been a part of that unfortunately have not led to clinical therapy, uh, but, but what these trials have supported is that in the future, if we get permission from the FDA to actually do these procedures in what we call earlier stage patients, mm-hmm. or when patients, you know, their Parkinson's disease hasn't progressed as much, that, the, for example, in this case, we, the data would support that the nerve may have a much even greater effect. So mm-hmm. if we show safety in these studies and evidence of potential benefit to the FDA. In the future, we plan to go to the FDA and ask them the question, you know, could we administer this approach as a monotherapy in early in earlier stages of Parkinson's disease right. without DBS? And that wouldn't have any more of a safety issue than regular DBS right now? Well, at the present time, we see that the nerve implant has, uh, has created no greater uh, safety issue than DBS itself. And in fact, we really have uh, very little adverse events that we uh, have had, you know, that we report uh, routinely. uh, And we've had basically now we're up to uh, 58 subjects that have received the DBS plus technology. Right. So let me ask you on that. So the number of subjects you said is 58. Um, Have they uh, all had the benefit or have they all had? any kind of adverse events? So what's the benefit adverse event ratio so far? Well, thus far, we've had, uh, we've had two patients die of natural causes that the pathologist and uh, everyone would say has nothing to do with uh, the implants. Okay. Because these are advanced patients and uh, actually uh, one died of pneumonia and the other died of uh, a heart attack. Okay. Um, and so we, we really, uh, we, we have published some of the uh, AEDs, uh, you know, that 
frankly, and AEDs are adverse, adverse events. events. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and uh, frankly, they're the same type. You know, mild headache. We uh, that we cannot discern from really the uh, there since the DBS is done at the same time. Yes. The same type of AED that you can see with a DBS, we occasionally see with the DBS plus. Correct. So we see no difference at this time. So the the, the summary is that there's not not anything more adverse from DBS plus compared to DBS so far Correct. from the 58. How about um, benefits? Is there anything more that patients have gotten so far from your experience? Well, what we're seeing, and I want to caution everyone, uh, we call this open label uh, clinical trial. And by the way, these two clinical trials are registered at uh, uh, trials.gov. Yes, clinicaltrials.gov. Yes. And uh, so everyone can take a look at what we're doing. This is full transparency. Mm-hmm. But, w- you know, we, we are not using a what we call a control group. In other words, a group of patients that are untreated but don't know mm-hmm. that they've been treated. Mm-hmm. So I'm very cautious to tell you that these are definitive findings. Yes. However, the results now we have in many of the patients out several years yes. support that we are getting sustained clinical benefit uh, from the graft implants. And our argument is very simple, that the, the Parkinson's disease in these patients, that uh, in patients that are untreated, just continues to advance. Yes. And so what we're seeing in many of these patients is an improvement in their uh, basic motor skills and capabilities off medication and off the DBS. Mm-hmm. But the big thing is we see evidence for a change in the, the slope of their symptoms changing right. as a function of time. Right. So what you're here, mentioning here is that there's a natural progression of the disease, which is what we call as a slope, where there's a gradual deterioration in function in overall. And you're saying that slope is slightly improved, meaning there are lesser, uh, there appears to be lesser progression with the great caution that there is no control for this. So it's an open label. So there's a uh, possibility of bias coming into this, both from a patient standpoint of view and also from the scientist standpoint of view, both can be biased. But besides that caveat, there seems to be a trend that that might be. Well, there is a statistically significant effect on uh, the, this measure we use in the clinic a lot called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. Right. So for the again, for the listeners, many of you may be familiar with the scale that your doctors perform where you're asked to tap your fingers and roll your wrists and open and close your uh, hands and then tap your feet and make you walk 30 feet. And then we ask you to sit down in the chair and get up from the chair without any support. That collectively is called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, which is what Dr. Gerhardt is now mentioning as the uh, measure. And if I, if I got you right, you, the doctors who are performing these type of tests, they performed it in the off state, meaning they were asked to not take their medication and they came in for the visit. And he also turned off the DBS so that the effects of both the medication and the DBS were taken out of the equation. And then you asked whether these patients are showing any kind of change, right? Is right. That, yeah. And, and on that measure, you actually found out that um, there was some change, some improvement, right? Is that, is that, is yes, that, is that in that, fact, clinically relevant in that, uh, Frankly, we, we, we see a decrease in their off-off, off-drug, right. off-DBS, right. off of, of, on average, greater than 10 points on the UPDRS scale. That's great. Over mm-hmm. a two-year period. And as uh, 
as you know, they're usually our patients usually uh, lose about three to four points per year. Correct. Yes. So not only are we improving their baseline, but we're keeping them from getting worse. Warren, you have uh, thoughts and questions? Yeah, just to summarize a little bit, the, uh, the brain can't regenerate itself. So you found a way to get the nerve in the arms or legs or periphery to put in the existing holes in the DBS. Does that summarize it pretty well? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good way of looking at it. Actually, the... The nerves are these little chemical factories of these wonderful molecules that can repair nerves. And many of us have been trying to use, frankly, one molecule, let's say, which is the, the simplest and safest way to go, but nature knows best. And so we're trying to capitalize on nature knowing for many, many years how to repair itself. And in fact, uh, from that, we hope to learn as we are uh, the actual pathways and imagine then in the future if we know how to set off those signals in your brain to repair itself then we don't need the peripheral nerve we don't need the dvs so uh, in in years to come we we give you a drug that can uh, activate that target much like any other drug you take for your blood pressure or your heart rate and it goes, it activates this pathway in your brain, and we stop your Parkinson's from progressing. Right. Let me also ask from a, from a listener perspective, uh, the logistics. So um, I know um, we know each other for a long time, but for the listener, they may not know. Um, how big is your team, and who are all the key members? Uh, obviously, you have a neurosurgeon working with you very closely who um, trained uh, uh, under you for uh, science, and then went on to do his neurosurgery residency and uh, has done great, uh, great, wonderful work. Um, so you work with him as a team. So can you describe a little bit about how the team works, how the patients are selected to this, uh, to the, to the surgery, and how then you do you make sure that the right patient gets into the trial and are. Uh, properly informed about all the risks and benefits and before they go for the surgery? Well, our, our team is actually uh, quite large. And in fact, we, as, as was stated, we used to be one of the NIH uh, Morris K. Udall Parkinson's Disease Research Centers of Excellence, but really we were moving more from the basic science into the, the clinical translation and application. So our, our center now is, is, uh, called the Brain Restoration Center at mm -hmm. the University of Kentucky and really embodies three major players, but also a lot of people. So the greater family is over 30 people. Yeah. But Dr. John Slevin, who's head of our movement disorder group uh, yeah. at the University of Kentucky in neurology, Dr. Craig Van Horn, uh, trained at Harvard and uh, uh, he's a neurosurgeon. He's the neurosurgeon. Right. And so this is really a three uh, and then the, you are the key person in there with just all the neurophysiology. Yes. For you, for and me. so actually I went back to school uh, over uh, <laughs> six years ago. And while I had been trained to uh, record from rats and monkeys, uh, I had to learn how to properly record from humans. Uh -huh. And so I am an MER certified uh, neurology uh, person. Right. And so, so MER stands for microelectro recording, which is the technique that we use for recording um, in the brain while 
patients undergo this type of surgery. So just again for the audience. So, yeah. so Craig Van Horn, Dr. Van Horn, who is our uh, surgeon in charge, uh, actually, as we said, used to be one of my patients for his PhD side of his MD PhD. <laughs> now he's my boss in the <laughs> OR, which is great. Uh, and, uh, and so this, this team is an example of a wonderful interplay between the basic science of, in neuroscience, where I have a huge preclinical team that has all of the basic science, and then we have this wonderful clinical team yeah. uh, composed in neurology and neurosurgery. Right. And so to answer your question, that is how we first treat the patient and optimize uh, their therapy. Right. And ultimately, uh, I will tell every, every one of the listeners, we don't just take anyone for the DBS surgery. Uh, they have to be patients that meet uh, not only the FDA criteria, but our criteria for the procedure. Right. Uh, and, and so their first, uh, we, we uh, screen all the people. And by the way, we've, we've had patients that have actually... Uh, come to our center from uh, eight other uh, states as well as Canada. And we have European uh, subjects who are interested as well. But we're, uh, you know, our our greater uh, brain restoration center is always open to reevaluate and determine whether or not anyone is first a good candidate for DBS. And then if then we discuss with you the possibility of DBS plus. Right. So it's a very... Um, selective process and they have to meet the strict criteria set up by the FDA in order to make it into the trial. So it's not meant for everybody. So we don't want to encourage people to just call. But on the other hand, if they're interested, they can certainly seek more information about this study that's going on, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what would be the way in which if anybody is interested to learn more about this, how would they go about knowing more? You already mentioned uh, clinicaltrials.gov is a website that you can go in and they can search for uh, DBS plus and then they, it will bring up the site and then give you the contact information. Is there any other information that you want to give to the listeners here that would be interested potentially in learning more about this? Well, we, uh, you, we, they can, uh, uh, Actually, we have several scientific publications, but those are not necessarily always available, nor are they written in terms that are often easy for people to understand. But Warren Um, is actually a great source for that. So if you go into our blog and if people request um, the publication or have copies of the publication, Warren can certainly take care of that. that And and the other thing is that there are always... uh, in the context of learning more about uh, the the Brain Restoration Center and DBS Plus, people can always contact directly the Department of Neurology or this entity at the University of Kentucky we call the Kentucky Neurological Institute. Okay, okay? Mm-hmm. and you're welcome to uh, uh, basically uh, mention Dr. Slevin, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Gerhardt, and Dr. Van Horn. Right. Is it true that you don't want patients just for DBS Plus? You just take them for DBS and it's an added feature. You don't want them to sign up just for the plus. Well, uh, frankly, uh, you know, we, we tell everyone, uh, first you have to qualify uh, as a good DBS um, Mm -hmm. subject. Okay. And that's as per FDA. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I guess I wouldn't look at it that way. We would first evaluate whether or not you're a good candidate for DBS because that's the standard of care. And then if, if you meet that criteria, 
then we'd introduce the concept of the DBS plus. Mm -hmm. So it's an add-on therapy. But so you, in other words, you have to meet the criteria. For right, you don't want people just in the early you stage of Parkinson's. You, you can't. You cannot you can't, sign right, up right. for just yeah. DBS plus. Right. You have to sign up for DBS before you right. can do DBS plus. So, so it's an add-on therapy. Right. So, yeah. so I will say, but to, I guess, answer another side, we do have patients all the time that, that we are not their primary care provider for their uh, uh, Parkinson's treatment. Right. So we are referred by other clinicians all the time, and we do the DBS and or the DBS plus, and then they go back to their state or their clinicians who are taking mm -hmm. care of them. Right. So you don't have to be a, a patient in the greater Kentucky area like Appalachia or uh, Kentucky. So are you looking to expand uh, these type of studies to other sites? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we currently have two other uh, neurosurgical centers that do DBS mm -hmm. that are uh, gearing up for the DBS plus right. uh, and negotiating with other centers because what we would uh, like to do, we, we also like others are trying to get further support from agencies like the National Institutes of Health mm -hmm. to put together uh, what is called a phase two clinical trial where some of the patients would not receive the implant, others would, so that we can better determine any possible what we call placebo effects or uh, you know, effects that are not directly related to the implant. And we do that under what we call these uh, multi-center multi approaches. And indeed, uh, we have several groups. In fact, we are training uh, one group uh, right now from another major uh, center. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so a lot of great promise for this. Right, right. Uh, so let, let's kind of wrap things up here. Just, just one question. Yes, go ahead. Is it possible to keep those ports open into the brain for future uh, injection of medication, or is that something that uh, isn't thought of at this time? Well, uh, the thing that we, uh, I guess the, the, there are ways for us to put in a, a cannula port uh, so that's where we, I'll bring up again, that we are focusing on a, on a delivery, in this case we call DBS plus, uh, the insertion of the nerve. However, you could imagine that uh, if you wanted to have a device that delivers a drug, or if you wanted to insert in the future stem cells mm -hmm. into areas of the brain, you wanted to introduce viral vectors as gene therapy for different aspects, that that's what we're really saying, that the DBS Plus goes way beyond our application. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not the first. Uh, actually, it was uh, a group in California and uh, others that suggested. We were, we were just the first group to say, hey, we, we're going to move forward and actually use a concept of DBS and add on another therapy. Right. Good. So... Um we will call this a wrap at this point, mm -hmm. unless you have additional questions. No, I'm but I, I, I'm going to um, sort of summarize uh, our discussions today. Um, this is a fairly new uh, idea, uh, or newer idea. Uh, it's an open-label trial that's going on in University of Kentucky. Um, it is FDA-approved, but it's uh, um, very rigorously regulated. And therefore, uh, anybody who's interested will need to meet strict criteria to participate into this study. Um, the results so far are preliminary in the sense that it's not a double-blind placebo controls trial. So we have to take everything that comes with it 
with a degree of skepticism, although it's very promising, it's not the final word yet. The uh, safety of the procedures doesn't appear to be any worse than um, that of uh, regular deep brain stimulation surgery. And there is some promising signals that perhaps um, patients who undergo these type of procedures uh, would have some slowing of their Parkinson's disease based on the preliminary read so far. And that um, Greg and other, his great team is thinking about expanding it into a uh, bigger study involving many more sites and uh, maybe having a placebo or at least an arm which is not getting the, the, the part plus and see how that comes out. Does that sound like a good summary yes. of, of our discussion? Uh, well, I want to thank uh, Greg for coming on our podcast on behalf of both uh, Warren and right. myself. Thank you. And thank you for uh, being here. Um, hope to have you again for another session at some point. I greatly enjoyed it.